Thank you, Paul. Well, good morning. It's nice to see you this morning. If uh, we haven't met, my name is James Walden. I'm one of the elders here at Riverside Community Church and part of the Gills Creek Small Group. We meet kind of behind the neighborhood behind Target. Um, Not behind Target, that would be weird, but the neighborhood. (laughs) Um, But the passage for us this morning uh, is... uh, an exciting one, and depending on your background, as uh, if you grew up in the church, maybe it's fraught with lots of different uh, impressions over the years, but it's on spiritual warfare. So if you would open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6, we will be looking at verses 10 through 20. <clears throat> And if you need a Bible, which I encourage you to have a physical Bible in front of you, there should be one, or I hope, somewhere round about you in the chairs, and the seats. But Paul writes this to the believers at Ephesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." This is the word of the Lord. At this time, our children's church will be dismissed as well as Crossroads. And I invite you all to stand and to greet one another. Uh, This is great for our extroverts and painful if you're an introvert like me. But I encourage you to even greet someone you've not met before.
good so morning. Glad to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Thank you. All right. All right, we will slowly make our way back to our seats. It's great to hear everyone's shipper voices as we greet each other. Hey guys, how are you doing? Barbarios. The best way to quiet a crowd is, to, is the phrase, let's pray. So, <laughs> let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that is um, powerful, a two-edged sword, piercing into the very depths of who we are, even separating spirit from soul. Lord, we pray for your word to penetrate today, not that we would be wounded, but Lord, that we would be healed. And more than that, Lord, that we would be empowered for the battle. There is a war raging, and Lord, we need the divine strength that is available to us in Christ. We pray now, Lord Jesus, you would be present to empower us and strengthen your people, not because we deserve it or we've earned it, but because it is your good pleasure to give it freely to us, O Father, as your children. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a redundancy in our passage. I don't know if you noticed it in verse 11 and then again in verse 13. The apostle repeats himself, repeats a command, namely to put on the full armor of God. Twice he says it. It seems to be an important matter for him. And in between verse 11 and 13 is his reason why this is so important. It's verse 12. Verse 12, just to read it again, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. The reason why putting on the full armor, not just bits and pieces of it, but the full armor is because the reality is we have a terrifying enemy who is powerful. And the description here is meant to impress us, to even uh, warn us of the extent of this power. Um, Adam Young is a, a counselor, uh, a Christian counselor, who has a podcast entitled The Place We Find Ourselves. And in one of his earlier episodes, he sort of gives a defining uh, moment of why he even entitled his podcast The Place We Find Ourselves. And he goes on to a multi-part podcast on spiritual warfare. In other words, the place we find ourselves is in the middle of a war. We live in a world at war, he says. It's a war between light and darkness, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil. This is the place we find ourselves. And it's a war waged against the human race, against humanity itself. It is a war that operates uh, as we speak. We already saw glimpses of this in the Ephesians series. In chapter 2, he spoke, uh, Paul spoke of our previous condition before we came to know God in Christ. He says, you were at that time dead in your sins and transgressions in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is a power operating in us, among us, or in our midst, and the world that we're in. But the reason why we take on this armor isn't simply because there's such a great threat. It's also because with this armor we are to put on, we are assured victory. We are assured success to stand. That's the repeated command. I don't know if you noted it when I read. To stand is repeated throughout the passage. In verse 11, he says to put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand or withstand the evil day. That you may be able to withstand and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, in case we didn't grasp it, therefore stand. It's so that we might successfully stand against a powerful enemy. with monstrous threats. So the place we find ourselves, it's important to note the place we find ourselves is in first victory. What Paul's saying to these believers is that they are not standing on the devil's ground fighting to take ownership to win and conquer the devil's territory. What he's saying is, this belongs to Christ, and you are to stand on it firmly. What belongs to Christ? All of it. (laughs) Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch theologian who famously said, there is not one square inch of creation over which Christ does not cry, mine. In other words, all of these terrifying powers are under his conquering feet. Notice the language of verse 12 is a near repetition of what Paul's already listed in Ephesians chapter 1. If you'll turn to chapter 1 of Ephesians and look with me, verses 19 through 23, you'll see what I mean. Paul writes there of this incredible power. He calls it the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, which is in accordance to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Look at this. Far above all rule and authority and a power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He has put all things under his feet. These terrifying powers in the heavenly places, these spiritual forces of darkness, have already lost. Christ has already gained the victory. You are standing on his reconquered ground. And brothers and sisters, there's not one square inch of this world, of this city, of your lives that doesn't belong to Christ. And so you can stand firm. 
But to do that, we need his strength. Verse 10 says, kind of uh, redundantly sounding to us, be strong in his strength. What does that mean to be strong in God's strength? Finally, be strong, not just God's, specifically the Lord's, in Jesus' strength. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Again, that language is precisely echoing chapter 1, verse 19. That was that God's work was as at work in Christ, his strength and his might when he raised him from the dead. That strength and might, that mighty strength that's operating in Christ in his sovereign reign now, we have access to. We can be strengthened, not in a strength that just merely comes from Christ, but Christ's very own strength is what literally empowers us. The word finally is probably better rendered henceforth. From this time onward, in light of Christ's victory, be empowered, literally is what that means, to be strengthened. Be empowered in the Lord, in the strength of his might. In other words, put on his armor. Put on the armor of the Lord. And that armor is not simply the armor that comes from God. It is the armor that God possesses. It's God's own armor with which he fights and is victorious. We're not like David here and we refuse the king's armor to put on our own. We do put on the king's armor. Uh, You can see that Paul's drawing his language here of a Roman uh, soldier's outfit of his, his full Uh, panoply, which means the full armor of God, um, from Isaiah. And on the screen, you'll see what I mean. I'm going to read the whole context to get the flavor of it. But on, uh, on the screen, you'll see from Isaiah 59, the prophet writes this, Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. It seems like evil has won. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil only makes himself prey. Man, we could say that today, couldn't we? The Lord saw it, it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So then his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. That's six, Ephesians 6.14. And the helmet of salvation on his head, 6.17. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And I'll note here another Isaiah reference. Isaiah 11, speaking of this messianic figure who would arise from the line of Jesse, he says righteousness will be the belt of on his waist, faithfulness or truth, the belt of his loins. So he's, Paul's clearly drawing his imagery from the prophecy of Isaiah. And he goes on to say, according to their deeds, so God will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun in the east. God's reign will be universal. That same armor by which God conquers his foes and establishes his supremacy 
is the armor that we put on. It is what we clothe ourselves with. In other words, we put on Christ himself. All of these attributes are simply the attributes of Christ. Truth, righteousness, readiness of the gospel of peace, faith. And it's strange armor, if you think about it, for a war. It's strange armor that we would put off the old self, as Paul earlier described in Ephesians 4, and put on the new, which was being renewed in the image of God and in true righteousness and holiness, to put off uh, uh, abusive speech and clamor and bitterness and in anything that is disruptive and destructive and to put on language that builds others up and gives grace in the moment. To put off clamor and slander and to put on gentleness and compassion and forgiveness. This is our weapons. To, to walk in love, imitating God himself, the Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. These are the strange weapons and armor that we are to equip ourselves with. And we put on the gentleness and meekness of Christ. We put on his integrity and his humility, his love and compassion, because only by such weapons can we stand. Because the truth is, the place we find ourselves in is victory, but it's also a contested victory. It's a war. We are in the thick of battle. And so, with that said, we must note what kind of war this is. The enemy is not waging war for geography. They're waging war for human hearts, for human souls. It's a war to destroy the image of God created in holiness and righteousness. It's an aggression, a violent aggression against God's love and grace. And so we must equip ourselves with the very, the very things our enemy tries to destroy. The nature of our warfare, as he says in verse 12, is that it isn't against flesh and blood. And that's very important for us to understand. Our war is not against China. It's not against Russia. It's not against North Korea. It's not against the, Palestine, the Palestinian Liberation Front. It's not against Al-Qaeda. As Paul just shared, our war is not against our Muslim neighbors and friends. It's not against atheists. It's not against liberal Democrats or MAGA Republicans or moderate liberal Democrats and moderate Republicans. <laughs> Whatever else raises our ire or fear, that is not what our war is against. In fact, we're not fighting against anyone. We're fighting for these individuals. We're fighting for their hearts and their souls. And so we don't use fleshly tactics. We don't overpower. When, when we power up in Christ, it looks a lot like surrender and yielding to Him. Listen to what Paul tells the Corinthians about his war. He says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That strange armor again. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power 
to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So this isn't, this isn't a culture war, which we as the church often get confused on. Sure, it engages false ideas and ideologies and idolatries. Every thought captive, every knowledge that sets itself up against the knowledge of God or every, um, every argument. But in destroying arguments, we are using weapons that are only paradoxically powerful. They are often unimpressive to the world. Listen to what Paul goes on to say about his weaponry in 2 Corinthians. He says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamities, in beatings and imprisonments, in riots, in labor, in sleepless nights, in hunger. This is what winning the war looks like. He goes on, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God and with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor through slander and praise we are treated as imposters and yet are true as unknown and yet well known as dying and behold we live as punished yet not killed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. That's what winning looks like. Note Paul's position when he writes this letter. Where is Paul? He's in jail winning the war. He has zero cultural power. He is winning. He's about to stand before Caesar and bear witness to the gospel. He's winning. I even wondered if while he's sitting in prison and seeing all these soldiers walk to and fro, it even brought to his mind this a Roman suit of armor to, to write this letter. But whatever the case, in his cultural powerlessness, he has enormous spiritual power. That's the power we ought to seek. In order to, to stand against the evil day or in the evil day, when is the evil day? There's a lot, a lot of debate on when the evil day is. Is the evil day the last day and the great tribulation? Is the evil day a particularly rough day in the life of a Christian where there's unique temptations? Yes, all of that. The evil day is today and every day in the present evil age. Uh, in, in Ephesians 5, 6, 15, remember what Paul wrote. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Today is the evil day. And this present era is the evil day until the very last. In other words, this battle is every day, my friends. It's an everyday battle that we need to be equipped for. And to stand against the devil's schemes. What are his schemes? Well, this, the same word, it's only used one other time by Paul, and it's here in Ephesians, when he speaks of the, the immaturity of the body of Christ. 
being blown about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by the craftiness of schemes. Well, that word schemes is the same word that's used here, that you may stand against the devil's schemes. It's his deception, his deceitfulness. And sure, that comes through every wind of doctrine that may be a formal heresy, like denying the Trinity or denying the the deity of Christ or the resurrection. But more deceptive, more troubling, I think, are the ways in which we as God's people can become corrupt and compromise with the culture. So it's not just blatantly false doctrine, but cultural compromises, whether on matters of sexual ethics or our Western idolatry of autonomy and freedom, or the peculiarly American distortion of the prosperity gospel, which don't kid yourselves, if you grew up in the American church, this infects us. I don't care what denomination you were in. This notion that the gospel of Jesus and the fact that I believe it means my life will somehow be better and easier. That good things are coming my way because I am on the right team. I believe the right things, right? I'm too blessed to be stressed. Um, (laughs) Right, these corruptions enter in so subtly, so subtly and infect us. Um, And yet this is what we are to be prepared for, these distortions of the gospel, however subtle they can be. But not just from the culture at large, there are also very personal lies that the enemy uh, wields in our lives. The church father, Jerome, says, just as wise leaders of armies are accustomed to assault, especially those places of a city which are least protected, so that when they have broken in through those places, the protected areas may be easily captured, so also the devil seeks to break in and reach the very citadel of our heart and soul through those places which he sees lying open, perhaps not shut firmly. In other words in the most vulnerable areas of our lives, he enters. He is ruthless enemy. Our wounds are places the enemy loves to enter into. And those can go back to childhood. Adam Young talks about, in his podcast, agreements with evil that we make, even in our childhood, that we experience wounding and we interpret it through a grid. And that grid is handed to us. Maybe it's from our own fallen perspective, but it is not the truth, but it feels true. Like, I'm the black sheep of my family. I always mess it up. Or my voice doesn't matter. Or my needs are too much. I just got to stay quiet. Or it's better if I'm just invisible. Right? Whatever lies we told through our childhood, are ways in which the enemy reinterprets who we really are. You know, ever wonder why the gospel just is so hard to believe or we have to keep hearing it over and over again? It's because we've been shaped by a lifetime of lies that contradict it. That you really are loved. (laughs) That the Father sees you. That the Father wants to be in relationship with you. That Jesus sought you out. 
These are all things that we still struggle to believe because I have all the alternative narratives shaping my self-awareness and who I am and who God is for decades. The temptations uh, that are often interpreted by the flaming arrows there in verse 16, he, he talks about taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Um, that's been interpreted as all kinds of fiery temptation, lust, or anger. Uh, but interestingly, the only other, the closest biblical reference to this image comes from Proverbs, which says this, Let a, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and then says, oh, I was only kidding. God bless you. I love that, like, so the, you know, because we've all experienced that. The enemy, the person who just like deceives and lies, manipulates and says, oh, I was just kidding. It's, it's what we call gaslighting. Why are, you, why are you taking this like it's a big deal? It's not a big deal, right? The, the enemy deceives even about his deception. I'm not, even, I'm not lying to you, right? I didn't lie to you. Um, but the idea here is that these flaming arrows point to a kind of profound deception. And indeed, in every temptation, there's a deception, there's a lie. There's two kinds of lies, I think, two basic kinds, many kinds, but two basic kinds can be categorized under. One is a lie about who God is. Right? This was the lie with which the serpent approached Adam and Eve. It was really, you know what, God, God does have this knowledge. He doesn't want you to have that. You need to take it for yourself. Your father's not trustworthy. You cannot rely upon him to look out for your best interests you need to look out for your own interests. Right? That's a fundamental lie that the father is not a good father that we're tempted to believe. And so they, Eve reached out, right? She, she went the route of self-salvation. I'll, I'll take what is good for me. It was related, related very similar to what, how the, the enemy attempted Christ in the wilderness. The path toward glory Christ knew went through a cross. It went through humiliation and death. And Satan offered an easy out. You can have all this without that. Peter did too. No way should you be the, the Messiah should be crucified. No way. And what did, you, what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because he knew behind Peter was the tempter. Tempting him to an easier way out a way that subverted the Father's will, that didn't yield to the Father, didn't trust the Father, was good and right. And, and where Adam and Eve failed, Christ succeeded. But the second is to, is to not only distrust God, but to distrust others and ourselves. He alienates us from God, and then he alienates us from others, and alienates us from our very own selves. I can't trust other people. Right? It leads to a kind of despair. This, this relationship's beyond hope. I'm beyond hope. So it goes quickly from self-salvation, I will save myself, to I am doomed. Right? Earlier in Ephesians, remember what Paul wrote. He says in chapter 4, Be angry, do not sin, do not let your sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. What's he saying there? 
He's saying that when in our anger with others, we stay angry and we're not, we don't pursue reconciliation because perhaps it's hard. The enemy finds an opportunity there to tear apart unity and to create alienation between brothers and sisters. We're to be eager to maintain the unity of the bond of, bond of peace, but the enemy is eager to tear it apart. And he will use deception to say that relationship's beyond repair, right? That, that person's hopeless, or maybe you're hopeless. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul speaks to the same thing when he speaks about a person who'd been put out of fellowship in the disciplinary act of the church. And Paul says, that's enough. The penalty he's endured is enough. I urge you, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him lest, it says, he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. If there's anything to forgive, he says, I've forgiven him because we, we are not going to be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What's he going to do? He's going he's to tear apart the body. And, and not only the body, but this poor man who's been put out of fellowship and held at arm's length after repenting, he's, gonna just, he, he's in danger of despairing himself. Am I beyond the pale of salvation? Well, there's a lot more we could say, but our time is quickly running out. Two other things I'll simply mention is Satan, uh, Satan loves to use this attempt to, to tempt us through deception to sin, then he traps us in that sin, and then he condemns us for having committed that sin, right? So he's, he is the accuser of the brethren, is what Revelation says. In fact, that's on the screen. Um, uh, Revelation chapter 12 um, verses um, 9 through 12, uh, John writes this, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, a reference to Genesis, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. There you see his primary function. He's a deceiver, a liar. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. So, in other words, not only is he as the serpent tempt us into sin, but once we are entrapped in sin, he then goes, turns right around and accuses us and condemns us. You're good for nothing. You're lost. You're hopeless. He buries us with guilt and exaggerated shame. That's his tactic. But guess what? He lost. <laughs> so he's been cast out of heaven. And as a result, as the angel choirs sing, um, they, the, the saints, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because his, he knows his time is short. One of the deceptions of the enemy is saber-rattling. Do you know what I mean by that? He makes a big sound in fury, but he's lost already. But he will do all that he can to intimidate us. And it's easy to look at the world and to think it's lost. The world is overwhelmingly evil. It's just not going to happen to lead us to despair. That is a tactic of his deception. But we know he is lost, and his time is very short. There's one last thing I really want to uh, 
to nail down here before our time is up, and that is there's a, there's a lot of defense here, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, which the Roman shield was lined with leather that was soaked in water so that flaming arrows would be extinguished. All of those, every single arrow of the enemy can be extinguished through faith in the trust that, no, Christ is sovereign. He has one. I am his. I've been bought by his blood. Martin Luther used to relay the... Luther was a little crazy. So he would have conversations, usually yelling at the devil. Uh, and the devil would tempt him and say, who do you think you are in this reformation, in this leadership? You know, and he would rehearse Luther's sins to him. And Luther would add, oh yes, but you forgot this one and this one and this one. And they are all covered by the blood of Christ. Thus he extinguished the devil's arrows. But there's also uh, weapons of advancement here, a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I would argue even the feet shod with the gospel of peace is a readiness to march, a readiness not just to stand still and standing our ground, but going into those darker places in our lives and in our city where where gospel light is threatened, where gospel light is um, obscured. The readiness word is used throughout the scriptures to speak of our readiness for good works. Or Peter says, be ready to give reason for the hope that is within you to all who ask. It's a readiness and preparedness to share the gospel of peace. Isn't it ironic we wage war not through a gospel of war, but a gospel of peace? This is the very task of the church, to declare the good news that evil has already lost, that God has won, and it's just a matter of time. And in the meantime, we need only to stand. This is our important work. Paul said earlier in Ephesians that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When they see the church stand Christ's ground, they know they are doomed. When they see the church remain unified under threats and pressure and corruption, they know they are doomed. And so... As regards the power, one commentator writes, the gospel does sound a note of judgment. It announces their defeat. And as the church continues to be reconciled and a reconciling community, reconciling others to God through the gospel, the gospel conquers the alienating hostile powers that bring and brings about God's saving purposes in the world. We advance on this territory where the insurgency has threatened God's victory or seemingly threatened God's victory. In other words, all this is part of our redeeming the evil day through proclaiming and embodying the gospel. It's one of our prayer points for 2023 that's in the prayer guide is that we would all of us more and more bring the gospel to bear in all of our relationships, in our families, at work, in our neighborhoods, in friendships, through both what we do and what we say. Are your feet readied for the gospel of peace, readied by the gospel of peace, to march into some of the darkest places 
with His light. You are empowered with His strength. You can go there. There is no place where Christ is not already reigning. Listen, Christ came to us as brilliant light in our great darkness, and He conquered through His meekness and His gentleness, through His compassion and His relentless grace. He conquered me. In His incredible love for you and me, He gave up His life in the most shameful death His culture could imagine and inflict. And through the power of His resurrection, He endured in His love for us, even through death itself. And He now reigns over all of heaven and earth, every square inch, for us, for our good and for our everlasting hope. That's why all things must work together for our good. So church, though we are in the middle of a war facing a ruthless and powerful enemy, let us stand on the ground that he's reclaimed. For he who is in you is so much greater than he who is in the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your son to do battle for you when all of us failed. <laughs> in fact, we weren't only uh, failing to fight, we were already captured and enslaved. And Lord Jesus, you came and you liberated us and you defeated our enemy and yours. And now, Lord, not only are we liberated, but you empower us to fight alongside you. Lord, empower us now, and I pray we would wage war against the darkness as we sing truth against lies that would disperse the lies in this room, in, in our city, and, Lord, in our own hearts as we do battle in our own hearts. May your truth be the belt that girds us up, and may you firmly place the helmet of salvation upon our heads, Lord, for the hope that is ours in Christ.